You see the uh, things up here on the floor again? Do you guys remember what they are? What are they from? No? Well, they are, but what do they represent? Salvation, actually the fullness of salvation. They're just thinking again that if you've not been with us, this was a message that was uh, done back at Christmas time, and that was the gift of salvation, the greatest gift that was ever given to us, and the fullness of salvation. You say, where am I going with that? And I was thinking about that again this morning, just to introduce that again. You can go back and listen to that message. It's, um, you can link through to our webpage and then onto the YouTube channel to get the message for that. But the fullness of salvation is more than just to get to heaven and having your sins forgiven. There's a whole bunch of stuff in there that Jesus unpacked for us on the cross. And one of the things that's sitting right here in the front is that one right there, shameless. When sin came, <clears throat> original sin in the garden, one of the things that immediately happened is they were ashamed. Self-consciousness. And we had a great picture up here, little people up here this morning, that most of them were totally not self-conscious whatsoever. Jesus told us that we're to come to him like what? Little children. Which means no shame, no self-consciousness. And just come in Freemans. And as adults, we really need to get a handle on that one. <clears throat> because we have terrible inhibitions that have nothing to do with anything other than the fact that we're afraid of what people will think about us. And I'm speaking to myself because that's me through and through. Always nervous about what somebody thinks. And the beautiful thing is sometimes I look at the innocence of a little child and think, I wish I could be that so self-unaware that it <clears throat> I don't even think about what people think. I just do my thing. And so I encourage you that. So... <clears throat> we've been in this series of messages on biblical human sexuality for several weeks now with breaks in between, and we're going to, believe it or not, try to wrap it up, but one of the things that's true is we have not exhausted this. But I want to go give you a quick rundown on the different message titles in the series. We started out with the idea of the unchanging nature of God, and we laid that as a foundational piece from which we could tackle this, this, this subject that's so in the world today and, and trying to look at it from a biblical perspective. So we had the unchanging nature of God. Then we went to take a look at what God's original plan for sexuality is, and it was God that made male and female <clears throat> distinctly different. And for lots of reasons, and that is sexuality. And if you remember what he declared when he was done, it is what? Not just good, but it was very good. So the idea of our sexuality and all that goes into that, he declared it very good. It was his plan. This is before the fall. It was very good. Okay? And then you see the next one, God wants to sanctify your sexuality. Because we talked about if this is God's perfect plan and it was this wonderful thing, sexuality was, then what happened? Why do we see what we see in the world today? Why are things so messed up? It's because of sin. Original sin and sin as a result going forward. And the beautiful thing about that is God's desire was to sanctify people, to bring them to a place of forgiveness, and then start to restore what his original plan was in them, including their sexuality. And then the, the fourth message was God's instructions and foundation for sexuality, where he talks about um, what his plan was, but also what he calls good and what he calls bad. In other words, what are the things that we're to avoid and not do? And that was in that message. And if you remember that piece, you can't separate it out from other sinful things. Because sexual immorality and sexual sin was wrapped right up in what? With these other lists like what? Anger and greed and malice and factions and, and lying and, and, and you name it, they're all there. And then the one we did last week, marriage and human sexuality, the battleground for God's eternal plan where we took a look at marriage and how that has been, you know, our, our culture, the world has tried to redefine that and also the idea of gender identity issues and all those things there. And we looked at that from the perspective of what was God's original plan in both those arenas that he defined, and you begin to see that what the world's doing now is a direct attack on that plan. It's not the world that's attacking it, it's a ploy of the enemy to get at God's perfect plan, which was what? He was seeking godly offspring to populate heaven, to be with him throughout eternity, and all the things that the world is doing is the enemy's behind those things to try to thwart God's plan. And like I said, we have not even begun to exhaust this whole topic, all the things that are in Scripture, but you have to bring these things to a close sometime because we could continue for a year on the same topic, but we need to move on to other things as we go forward. Um, I want to say that there are many, many examples in the Bible that actually have accounts that deal with sexuality, like stories and things like that, okay? And they can give valuable insight. <clears throat> we can... Uh, 
it's interesting that if we're not careful, we can also take things that God has designed. Like God designed marriage. And one of the things I came across as I've been reading and researching and listening and thinking about these things is I heard a, a speaker say that when it comes to, and I heard it again this week, that we even take marriage as Christians sometimes and we can actually make that an idol. One thing I don't have time to get into is when Paul writes about it would be better if you weren't married because then you wouldn't have the distractions. Because what's the ultimate goal for us as Christians? It's not to be married and have a family. The ultimate goal as a Christian is to follow Jesus and be obedient to His eternal plan for our life. And anybody that's married knows that can help you in that, but sometimes it can be something that because of trying to please each other and work those things out and the conflicts that can occur, it can actually be a distraction at times. So we need to be careful as Christians that we don't put marriage up here as the ultimate end from God's perspective. It's not necessarily. It's just one of those things that he actually said this. Why did he give us marriage? He said because it's better for you to have a spouse than to burn with lust and stumble into sin. I don't have time to develop all that, but there's that whole line of thinking in there. But I want to encourage you that even though the world is attacking marriage in one sense, we've got to be careful how we talk about that as Christians and as a church. Because if we put out there that marriage is the end of all, end all and in all, what about people that, that, that never get married? And that's what God has for them. They can feel like they're, 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 they're accomplishing less or less in the eyes of God, which has nothing to do with it whatsoever. All right? Um, I can, I'm going to note here, maybe in the future we can come back once in a while to this same topic of human sexuality and take a look at the other things that might be in Scripture as we come across that. But I got one more, pack, uh, a pass, one more message today, and that's the one today. And actually when I opened up with the first, I don't know if it was in the first message or the second message, I had either people indirectly or directly ask me the question. I, I, well, some people said, I hope that, somebody could, they said, I hope that he's going to talk about what do we do when we're dealing with somebody that is dealing with sexual sin or is dealing with their sexual identity or, or, or gender identity. What do you do with that? Okay, how do, you, how do you handle that? And I had other people ask me directly, are you going to cover that? And I said, yes, I am. And I was waiting to the spot because you kind of got to get, that's why I've told people, please listen to the whole thing. Because if you listen to just one message or even a phrase from one of the messages, you might not want to listen anymore because of how you can take those things out of context. But hopefully at this spot, if you've listened to all the messages, you've caught a really good, broad perspective from what God is saying about sexuality. What He's not saying, but what He has said already and His plan hasn't changed. And so I will give you another warning today that if you think that I'm going to tell you today about what you're to do with that person that's in your mind right now or those people that are in your mind right now that you have a relationship with that are dealing with sexual sin or sexual identity issues or whatever it happens to be in the culture, I'm not going to be able to tie that up with a neat little bow because the neat little bow doesn't exist. I don't mean to say that without hope, but bear with me as you go through this. You're going to find that we're going to give some, some principles, if you will. We're going to take a look at some examples. Okay? Um, and leading into this, how about this here? As a follower of Christ, we need to stop compartmentalizing sin and our response to it. Let me say this right now. I have never had somebody come to me and ask me, what should I do, or how should I relate to, or how should I come alongside and walk with a person who's struggling with alcohol? Never had anybody ask me that. Um, I've never had anybody that's come alongside me and asked me, what do I do with somebody who is really struggling with lying or with anger? And how do I come alongside and walk with them in the midst of it? But the moment that we came to sexuality, I had people come forward, I don't know how to deal with that. Now, I get that it's a big thing in our culture, but we've we got to take a step away from that second and saying why... <laughs> they're, they're in, you have to weigh that one there because we have a tendency, and maybe because it's a hot potato issue in our culture and what it does in Christianity. I'm just simply saying, let me give you an answer. You deal with the person that's dealing with a sexual issue in their life the same way you deal with somebody that's struggling with anger or that's dealing with lying or cheating, or stealing, or substance abuse, or pornography, or whatever. You just, you just put it in there. It's all the same. There is no special thing to do. Okay? We found out very clearly, I'll throw this right up there, 
Hopefully you can see those things. There's all kinds of sins or misbehaviors. And if you go back into one of the messages, those are in, if you take those words, they all come directly out of Scripture. And it says things like, people who practice those things that you see up on the screen will not inherit the kingdom of heaven will not be in heaven for those that habitually practice those things. Now the hard part, look at the big one in blue right there, jealousy. It's like, ouch. You know what I'm saying? So again, I'm not trying to water down the idea of sexuality, but bringing it instead of making sexuality so important like our culture has done, and then we in the church focus on it so much as far as combating it and fighting against it, it comes right alongside with all kinds of other things that Jesus and the Spirit, God prompted through the Spirit for, to be addressed. Things like murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking, prostitution, promiscuity, homosexuality, swindling, lust, evil desires, anger, rage, malice, practicing magical arts, even your thought life. If you remember a few weeks ago where Jesus said, if you have thought or lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery already. So Jesus isn't just saying that it's just what you do, but what's going on in your thought life is important as well. <clears throat> Actually, the things you see up on the screen, going back a little bit of review, if you remember that, it says, according to what God said, there shouldn't even be a hint of any of those things in our lives. And see, because our culture is so depraved, as long as we're not doing the big things or doing them all the time, we can back off and say, well, I, it's, I'm not as bad as that person. But, but God says, no, even a hint of those things is unacceptable. Like I said, yet for too long, Christians in the church have focused on certain sins and overlooked others and give a pass on certain sins while they focus on others. But since we're in this series on sexuality, we're going to do that. What we're going to do today is we're going to take a look, because the Bible actually gives some excellent examples about how Jesus himself dealt with people that were struggling with sexual issues in their life. We don't even have to, we don't even have to take a, a, a series of verses and interpret it. We can actually look at exactly what Jesus did as he interacted with the people that were in those spots, and that's wonderful. I'm going to tell you right now, first off, the key thing is this. The key thing... If you, if, and you will. If you haven't yet, you, you will be dealing with people that are struggling with sexual issues in their life, and you probably already are. You probably have people, and whatever it happens to be, that are really struggling or really having a hard time or that make you uncomfortable, whatever else. But the key thing is love in all of this. And when I say love, Christ-like love. And there's a difference between the two. Love in general, and actually uh, on the back at the information booth, there's a devotional this week that I wrote that is entitled, What is Love? And in our world today, oh boy. So that's on the back. You can look at that. It gives a whole bunch of scriptures that you can read through and some other things that are thought-provoking about what God says love is. Okay? Christ-like love. I'm going to tell you right now, <clears throat> all people that struggle with sin, I don't care what sin it is, people struggling with sin, which means they're having a hard time overcoming of it, gaining control over it, mastering it to stay away from it. All people that are struggling with sin, whatever it is, need to experience firsthand, individually need to experience the love of Jesus. They need to experience the love of Jesus. <clears throat> if they're struggling with sexuality, whether it's heterosexual sin or homosexual sin, they need to experience personally the love of Jesus. Whether it's gender identity or gender confusion, what they need is to experience the love of Jesus. If a person's dealing with substance abuse, what do they need? They need to experience firsthand, deep in their heart, the love of Jesus. And anything we've previously mentioned, I read that list that was up on the screen, if people are struggling with lying or jealousy or hatred or whatever it happens to be, they need to experience the love of Jesus. And when I say that, the authentic love of Jesus not picking and choosing the parts of what we see Jesus do and say and how he acts or what he says, but the full aspect of the love of Jesus. In the authentic love of Jesus, ready? Listen to this. It accepts. It comes alongside. It values. It actually serves. And it sacrifices for the benefit of others. 
But you can't stop there. And see, what happens right now is, you might ask the question, we talked about, there are churches that would teach very differently than I've taught in this whole thing. That a lot of the things that we declared the unchanging nature of God, that certain things like sexual uh, promiscuity or sexual immorality and homosexuality and all those other things are not acceptable. They're sin. They separate us from God. There are churches out there, lots of them, that preach, no, that's not the case, that God accepts those things. And you say, how can that happen? <clears throat> a lot of them would come at it of taking this part, it's only half of the authentic love of Christ. Because the, this half is, it accepts, it comes alongside, it values, it serves, and it sacrifices. But the other half of the love of Jesus, which we're going to see in the story in a minute here, it also tells the truth. Authentic love, authentic Christ-like love, loves so much that it tells the God truth when needed. Even if that brings division. But it, the two must be married together. You can't just share God's truth and not have the love of Christ, the acceptance, the, the self-sacrifice, the serving, the going after and helping somebody come alongside them. But you can't just accept and love and care and all those other things and not tell the truth. Both of them are equally damaging. And they lead us to two different ditches in this whole argument. One is, it's all okay, God accepts it all because He's a loving God, all the way over to the other side, this is bad, this is wrong, you're going to go to hell, and that's the end of the discussion. And neither one is accurate. You have to come, and not to the middle even, the middle is the wrong comment, you have to marry those two things together, where you love and care, but you love and care enough to share God's truth as it comes out. That has been the goal in my heart, in pleading with Jesus in the midst of these messages, that as I share the truth, that it's married with that caring and acceptance in that. And I told you last week, my heart goes out to people that are struggling in this, these areas with a cesspool and the nasty stuff that's just swirling around and how different things are being touted as being okay and not okay and just the mess that's out there. My heart goes out. It's a confusing time for people to figure these things out. As Christians, though, we have the truth and we also have Christ-like love. And those two things come together and can allow us and be a great platform from which to help people who are really struggling and looking for answers. <clears throat> we have Christianese for this term. And I would caution us, even, even here in your conversation, um, let's, let's look at this way. Let me put this out. Let's say we're all out in the foyer doing what we do. We're chatting and talking. And I'm having a conversation out loud. And let's say a person walks in, never been to church before, doesn't know anything about God, doesn't know anything about this stuff. They're just drawn and they come. They don't know us. They really don't know what we believe. They don't know where we come from, all that kind of thing there. And in your conversation, you're having this conversation and you say this to your friend out loud and they happen to overhear it. We have to love the sinner and hate the sin. Okay. What that, what that Christianese term is, it's trying to get this mixture between the two. But if we're not careful, we use these catchphrases that a person who's uninitiated in Christianese, they hear what? Love the sin? Hate the sinner? Or no, I'm sorry, back, backwards. <laughs> sorry. Sorry. Hate the sin. Hate the sin. Make sure we, we edit that. <laughs> Hate the sin, love the sinner. Now, depending on which one you, you hear that, if you start with the hate the sin, and that's the only thing they just heard, oh my gosh. You've just proven, we've just proven to them that's who we are. We're just judgmental, awful people that are just waiting for people to screw up so we can accuse them. But that, I'm, not, I'm not picking on that term, but we must be careful, especially in the day that we live in, the phraseology we use, the truth sets people free, not Christianese. Christianese actually becomes a stumbling block for the purity of God's truth. Okay, You can take that one and turn that around in your mind. I caution you, even in church setting, where everybody else supposedly understands, don't count on it. You don't know even with the person that you, 
you've known for a month and you've been having conversations in the foyer exactly what their background is. Okay? Now, let's get into some examples now. Enough introduction. We're going to start with the woman caught in adultery. Okay? I'm not going to make any comment until we read. So we're going to turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, and we're going to start with verse 1, and we're just going to read this account. <clears throat> but Jesus went up to the, the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Let's make some observations. Like again, the beautiful thing about a story that has Jesus as the main character in it, his actions, he is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is the one that we're supposed to follow, his example. And we have an example right here where he's dealing with somebody that's really struggling with sexual sin. Okay? Observations and some background. First off, Jesus was not looking for this encounter that day. Okay? It's, this, this actually could fit in one of my along-the-way sermons. This encounter with the woman caught in adultery totally occurs along the way. Jesus got up after a night of prayer. He went to the temple courts with the uh, plan that He was going to teach people again. He was going to talk to them about the things of God and explain those things. All right? He didn't wake up intending on coming alongside an adulterous woman and having this challenge. I want to tell you this morning, I would assume, some of you already know this is the case because you've told me as much, but in these, in these messages, you ha and not in a judgmental way because your heart is concerned and you have friends, you have family members that are struggling in some of the stuff that we've been talking about and you love them and you care about them and, and those things there. And some of those people though, you, you, you didn't actually uh, set out 10 years ago, 5 years ago, or whatever it is, looking for a person in your life that was going to be struggling with their sexuality. You never, that wasn't your goal. That wasn't your plan. And that's why it's hard for us to know what to do because these things occur along the way as we have the love of Christ in us and we come close in relationship to people, we find out that people have struggles. In this case, we're talking about sexuality only because it's the series, but it could be any sin. Any misbehavior according to God's plan. I want to tell you this. God placed them in your path. Just like God placed this woman in Jesus' path. Now, another observation. She was guilty. You can't, <laughs> you can't explain this away. She was guilty. How do we know that? The Bible tells us explicitly that she was caught in the very act of adultery. There was no denying what she had done. There were eyewitnesses that caught her, and she couldn't deny it because she got caught in the act. Another thing. Not only was she guilty, she's hurt, and she's ashamed, and she's beaten down by what's going on. Can you imagine the shame, the guilt, be bad enough doing what she had been doing and not getting caught, but actually getting caught and then being put in a spot like that was terrible. I want to tell you, there's a likelihood that the person that you interact with has some of those same feelings deep down inside of them, which is hurt, shame, being beaten down with questions and all kinds of other things. Another observation. The religious leaders appeared to be upholding the law. 
appeared to be upholding the law. I'm telling you that it's, well, I'm not telling you It was clear, according to Jewish law, that because she was guilty of adultery and there was no questioning whether it was true or not, that she should be stoned. That's what the Mosaic law said. Caught in adultery, you're stoned. All right? Yet I want to tell you this. They didn't care about the law in this situation. The Bible tells us what? They were using this situation to seek a trap by which they could trap Jesus and find things to accuse him of. They didn't care one bit about that woman. They would have said they cared a great deal about Mosaic law, but no, if their goal was to trap Jesus, they didn't care about the law either. I'm going to tell you this. Unfortunately, the church, when I say that, people who proclaim to follow Jesus have too often in its history have used hurting and struggling people, particularly in sexual areas, as their personal soapbox. I read an article this week. The headline caught my attention. That with all the things going on with the potential overturn of Roe versus Wade and what that's going to do for the legalization of abortion. If if you're aware of all what's going on, like Pandora's box has been opened. And it's a great thing that we could get rid of that because murder is murder, all right? But what caught my attention in this article was this. Some Christians that are pro-choice believe that God's on their side. And I'm like, ooh, 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 major disconnect, major disconnect. So I figured I'd read it. And they were talking about this idea again. What had happened was, in defense of them, I, I, I appreciate their heart, but it's a little misguided because it doesn't bring the other side in. It's totally over here on this side of the, the caring, the acceptance, the reaching for people, the sacrifice, and all those things. But you know, they were talking about, there was people actually, believe it or not, there were these, there's these Christian people in, in more than one situation that actually work in abortion clinics. Literally work right in there and are helping these gals go through abortions. And I'm like, I'm just like reading. I'm just like, well, okay, they're, and they were just simply saying that, talking about that, trying to give an explanation, and I won't go into all those things there. But one of the things they talked about is outside the abortion clinic, there are people out there demonstrating, okay? And some are giving pamphlets to people, you know, there is another way, which is kind and considerate, but then there's other people, you sinner, you're going to hell. Now that person is all over here yelling what they, what they claim to be the truth, which is a partial truth, it's a full truth, but it's, are they definitely going to hell? No, it's like any other sin. If, if a person comes to Christ for forgiveness, he's going to forgive. And so you see right there in that whole thing there, back and forth, you see these things going on. And, and, and the, the gals over there are saying, the people that are out there, they're saying that, I don't know what Jesus they're following, but it's not the Jesus I read about in the Bible. And there's probably truth in that, because if we go all the way to just truth, that's not how Jesus was in this situation. We're going to find further. The other thing that they said is there's one gal that said on her lunch break, she used to go outside, and there was a couple people that she befriended that were on the demonstration side, and they talked. And they were give and take back and forth and, and really understanding and trying to understand each other, where they were coming from, because they both supposedly were following Christ and that kind of thing there. And she said she did that for over a year or two. And then one time she walked in, and one of the very people she just talked to her and called her a murderer, she walked away. She said, I never went back. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And we wonder sometimes why people won't listen to us. Because we've got this mixed up thing right now. You know, you read that in an article, what, what, what is the world supposed to think? What's the world supposed to think? That as Christians, we can't get our act together so we agree on something as big, as culturally relevant as this whole issue. We need to be careful as Christians are just immediately jumping on our soapbox because we have truth behind us and not walking in the authentic fullness of Christ's love. Because sometimes we say we have one motivation, but in really we have ulterior motives in disguise. Now, interesting what Jesus did. Next thing. Jesus puts the self-righteous leaders in their place. He says this, If any of you is without sin... 
let him be the first to throw a stone. Now, in reading this week, really what Jesus was saying, if any of you is not guilty of this same sin of adultery, have at it to throw the first stone. The wording, not, not what he wrote in the sand, but the words that came out of his mouth in the language it was given in actually went to my one, a really safe source, which is Haley's Bible Handbook, and they don't do weird things, and they don't go off on, they just said the wording here is, 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 is clear, as clear as it can be that this is what they're talking about. That's what he was saying. Now, you say, does that mean that all those old guys, religious leaders, were cheating on their wives? I don't know. We used to say this, that everybody speculates on what he wrote in the sand. Was he writing their very sins in the sand? But he didn't have to write about lying and cheating and stealing because if his question was, if you're without guilt in this adultery area, then go ahead and first. I wonder if maybe he was writing in the stones if you've lusted after somebody. If you've taken a second look at somebody. You know, the more subtle things, which later on he said, are as bad as adultery. And the Bible tells us that what happens is one by one, the older ones first walked away. We've already said that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's probably why some of them walked away. Another thing, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount said this. I think I've got it. Yeah, I'll read it to you. It's right here on the Scripture. Ready? Don't judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way that you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure that you use, it'll be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brothers, let me take the speck out of your eye, when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That's pretty self-explanatory. We really, you know, are we, are we going to ever be perfect? No. But we need to be careful that we aren't walking in this delusion that we're perfect and then try to fix everybody else. We too must avoid self-righteousness at all cost. You might not struggle with your sexuality, promiscuity, lust, or homosexuality. But you likely, you definitely struggle in some other area. I'm not even going to say likely. You struggle in some other area. Anger, greed, your thought life, slander, foolish talk, jealousy, all that other list there. There's not a person that listens to this message that doesn't struggle with one of those things. You know what? The person who's dealing with sexual issues might, if you were to open up and talk about what you're struggling with, think, <laughs> what? that's not a big deal. I don't have a problem with that. We are all fallen people, and we all struggle with sin. What we need to do is to come alongside other people that are struggling in their sin and letting them know that we, not them, we aren't perfect. And then we have an open opportunity to share that God loves me in my imperfection. Jesus died on a cross before I was his follower. He made a way for me to be right with him. He made a way for me to be freed of the sin in my life and those kinds of things. And instead of pointing the finger and coming at it that way, coming at it as, I realize you struggle with this, but I struggle with that, and together we can come to the foot of the cross and it's available forgiveness for all of us, that perfect love. You also may find yourself, and I would encourage you to be quick to do this, when you start engaging with that person in your life that's having a struggle in sexual areas, and they talk about that, if they ever bring up a spot where a Christian mistreated them, you apologize. You apologize in saying, that's not how it's supposed to be. I had a woman once that told me, it was probably a test. It was before she ever set foot in the church. This person's gone to be with Jesus. But she came to me once and told me, as we were, as we, once she felt safe enough to ask the question, not knowing how I would respond, she had heard enough of truth as I shared it with her and with others. She said to me, you know, I used to be a member at a church. And she said, there was a time when I was very, very sick and I was in the hospital for a month. And a couple weeks went by, three weeks went by, and then the pastor came and visited me. And the only thing he asked me is, are you going to send your tithe? 
Never asked her how she was doing. Never prayed for her. Just asked, what about your tithe? What do I do with that? I did this. I'm so sorry. That's, that's not the way it's supposed to be. Your money, God cares about your money, but no, that, that shouldn't have happened. And I apologized as a fellow servant of the Lord that that's not the way it's supposed to be. That what you should have had is a visit and somebody came along, grabbed your hand, and prayed for your healing, prayed for wholeness, prayed for help, and not care about the money. So be careful. And you are not insulting somebody else. This isn't a private relationship with somebody. You have every right to say that's not the way it should be. That's not the way Jesus would treat you. Okay, another thing Jesus does. Watch this. He confronts condemnation. Back to the story. Accusers are all gone. She's all by herself with Jesus. And Jesus asks the question, woman, where are they? Hasn't anybody condemned you? Jesus is now dealing with her one-on-one. He didn't deal with her. The Bible says that they set her up. This group of religious leaders, or teachers of the law, they made her stand up in front of the crowd, and they're making accusations. They're talking about Jesus, about this woman, while she's standing there in plain daylight in front of a crowd. Jesus waits to really address her until everybody's gone, one-on-one. It's a very loving thing to do. A very loving thing to do. To care about somebody enough not to deal with them in front of other people or with somebody else there, but one-on-one. He removed all the noise. All the noise is gone now. God is calling you to remove the noise with the people in your life that are struggling. The accusers, those who don't have that person that's on your mind, that don't have their best interest in mind. They're just a ploy or a tool or whatever else. God calls you to work with His empowerment to remove the noise. Look what Jesus says. Neither do I condemn you. Don't jump to conclusions yet. Neither do I condemn you. When Jesus said that, you know who else was saying it? God was. God was saying that day. Woman, lady, whatever her name was, you're not condemned. There's hope. It's not over. This is not the end. I want to tell you this morning that, and I'm not going to get the letters right, LGBTQ plus and gender confusion are not the unforgivable sin. They are not the unforgivable sin. Jesus died on a cross for all sins, including the ones I just mentioned. Jesus came to seek and save the lost just like He did all lost people. He came for anybody stuck in sexual sin. He came and died on a cross to seek and save the lost just like He did all the other lost that we find it maybe more comfortable sometimes to come alongside. Jesus came to have a relationship with people struggling with sexual sin. His desire is what? To bring them into relationship with His Father. You know, think about yourself. When you were lost in sin, Jesus came alongside you. He loved you, cared about you, died on a cross for you. Why? To bring you into relationship with His Father. He wants to do the same thing for people that are struggling with sexual sin. Now, how about this one? Jesus tells the truth. He says, neither do I condemn you, but what's the next thing out of his mouth? Go now and leave your life of sin. I want to make a point here. He calls what she had been caught doing as sin. He didn't mince his words. He didn't sugarcoat it. He called it what it was, sin. And he tells her very clearly, honey, you need to change. You need to leave that lifestyle. You need to stop adultery. You need to stop all the other things. You need to stop any area of sexual sin. You need to leave those habitual things. You need to leave jealousy, hatred, strife, all that other stuff. But the sexuality part, you need to leave that life of sin. This 
statement when he says, now go and leave your life of sin is as much love and action as what he did at the beginning and removing all of her accusers and then interacting with her and telling her, neither do I condemn you, which is a great caring and loving thing. His addressing her sin issue and saying, leave it, is just as much love as the other thing is. Now, the world does not want to hear that. And a lot of churches and Christian people don't want to hear that. But the truth, saturated and married with the other part of the caring part of it, is just as much love as the, you know, we say, um, what do we call it? Unconditional love. Sometimes unconditional love can be a catch term for, I'm not going to confront your sin. I love you, and hopefully you'll get it. No. Real love will come alongside, build a solid relationship where it's clear that I care, and then take the, take the risk of offending again by telling the truth. The love of Jesus, the authentic love of Jesus, always tells the truth. Always, always, always. And you can take that one and read through all of Jesus' interaction with people. And his, he confronted Peter and called, Get thee behind me, Satan. He's addressing what he was comments were making. He's one of his closest followers. He, he has a, a rich young man who comes to him, and he tells him, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the man walked away. The man was alienated. He left. He didn't follow him anymore. The authentic love of Jesus always tells the truth. But at the same time, this confrontation that Jesus makes is encapsulated, totally surrounded and immersed in his undeniable love and acceptance of her as an eternal, valuable spiritual being that he desperately wants to bring change. Not just so that he can win points for himself. Jesus knows what the result of her sin will be on this earth and through all eternity, and he is desperately trying to build a bridge to help her to escape that so that she can experience true life and true fulfillment. It's that kind of love that caused her to take note out of what he said in confronting the lifestyle. If Jesus would have started with that truth, I'm not sure she would have heard him. But if he stopped with, neither do I condemn you, and then walked away, I'm not sure she would have gotten it either. You put yourself in her shoes for a minute. The relief when neither do I condemn you and everybody's gone, but then, now go and leave your life of sin. I'm sure those words rang in her mind for a long time. Okay? How about another one? John chapter 4, woman at the well. Another woman. Am I picking on women today? No, it just have to be the two stories I can get you. You can find all the other ones out there. It has nothing to do with it. You can put men in there, the same thing it just happens to be. Don't go there. That it's, just don't. <laughs> okay? John chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Uh, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to get some food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you're with now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we, where we must worship is in Jerusalem. <clears throat> Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. 
Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, Come see a man who who told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? They came out of the town and made their way toward him. Skipping down a little bit, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we, and we know this man really is the Savior of the world. Okay, very quickly. Another one, another along the way. Jesus did not set out that morning or that day or even when he sat down there to encounter this woman who's had five husbands. He didn't do that. He was walking from point A to point B. He's tired, he's thirsty, sat down because he's exhausted and he's thirsty. He was heading where? Home to Galilee. And then this woman shows up. How about this one? Jesus is always breaking the rules. He shouldn't have been interacting with a half-breed, unclean Samaritan. How dare you say that? That's exactly what the Jews they were. They were the Samaritans were the remnant of the northern kingdom that got sent off to captivity to a foreign land when Assyria took it, and Assyria sent in other foreign. Uh, captive people there and the remaining of the, the Jews that were there they intermarried and so now you've got no longer pure Jewish blood and the pure Jewish ones in the southern kingdom thinking how dare they do that they're no good anymore so they would not associate with Samaritans so much so that he shouldn't even have passed through their land straightest distance is what when you're on foot point A to point B straight line well they used to go all the way around so they wouldn't have to go through Samaritan and become unclean the other thing is, she was a woman and he's a man. Culturally, he should not have been interacting with this woman, culturally speaking, because she was a woman and he was a man and they're not married, shouldn't have been associating alone. Jesus was constantly ruffling everybody's feathers just like this. He eats and drinks with sinners. You can see he gets taken to task for it. You know, the ones too, they said one time, they're whispering, if he knew what kind of a person that that was, he wouldn't be interacting with them. He wouldn't let them touch them if he really knew what kind of a person that was. And it happened to be, I think, a prostitute who was reaching out to him. And they said if he really knew what kind of woman she was, he wouldn't be... Unfortunately, you know what? That's exactly what Christians in the church have said over the years. When somebody actually starts reaching for people that are sinners, ones that they're not comfortable with and don't like or whatever because they're living the wrong lifestyle, they say, if they really knew what kind of a person that was, they wouldn't be interacting like that. There's got to be something wrong. There's compromise there. Jesus said what? I came to seek and to save the lost. He also said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick people. And he's talking about sin situations, not physical health. Interesting thing Jesus does too here. Jesus addresses their sinful life without addressing it. You can't come at this one right here. And this is the thing. You say, well, Kyle, you know, now you're making it really hard because he told the other one, now go leave your life of sin. Well, this woman, he never directly told her. He never directly told her that what she was doing was wrong. You say, where are you going to go with this one? He tells her, listen to what he says. Go get your husband. She says, I have no husband. And then he says, you're right when you say no ha- you have no husband. The fact is that you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. What you just said is really quite true. Do you catch the... There's, there's a lot in that. I don't know what tone of voice he used to how he did it, but the thing that he tacks on the end of that, what you just said is really quite true. I'm not sure he was, he was at that spot was really building her up as somebody who's telling the truth. I think he's like, yeah, honey, (laughs) you don't have a... (laughs) In essence, what he just did is he called her out. He called her out. She told the truth when she says, I don't have a husband. She didn't tell the whole truth. And he didn't let her off the hook on that one. 
You see, he didn't, he didn't take, you don't have a husband. Oh, honey, it's okay. I know you don't have a husband. He made her. He made her tell the whole truth. She didn't want him to know the reality in her life. You know why we know that? How does she respond when that's all finally out there? She evades it. She changes the subject. Like twice. She says, she changes the topic. And so what does he do? He goes with it. He goes with it. He goes with it. And he uses her change of topic to give her what she really needs, which is the love of God through the Messiah. If you read through that, and you can do that on your own time, if you look what he did, she's evading, changing the subject, smokescreen, we're going to get into these controversial areas, and there's no way he's going to answer that, and he takes her back to the truth, and basically what it comes down to, I am the Messiah, I'm the bread of life, I have living water, if you get that water, you'll never thirst again. And she's really confused by that, and then going on and on, but what does she do? In the end, there's a level of understanding, and she accepts it. What's actually just happened to this woman is she has experienced real love. She experienced acceptance and care and concern because Jesus didn't initiate a conversation and finding out that she's had five husbands and she's living with a man which is sinful, he didn't say, see ya. No, he continues and continues and continues until he gets to the heart of the matter of her need for a Savior. And he shares the truth with her. What's her response? She can't be too put off because she leaves. And what does she do? She goes and she gets the people from her town. And she tells them, what'd she say? Now listen to this. If she, was, if she hadn't experienced this love and this confrontation thing, she wouldn't have had the response she had with the townsfolk. She said, Come, you gotta come, you gotta come and you gotta come and see this guy that told me everything that I've ever done. I'm not sure I'd want to go. They probably asked, what do you mean? I never met the man in my life, and he told me I had five husbands and I was living with somebody. Let's see, why would you want to go see a guy like that? I, I can't explain it, guys. She's saying she probably had you, I can't explain it. You're just gonna have to come and experience for yourself because even though he told me everything I had ever done that's wrong, he still loved me. And there's something about this guy that you've got to come. And it's interesting what happens. Many people came to Christ the Messiah that day and what we would say got saved. And their comment was, we no longer believe because what you said we believe because what we've heard and seen from him ourselves, that he truly is what? The Savior of the world. So what does all this have to do with people like you and I when we interact with people that are really struggling with sexual sin, with homosexuality, with LGBTQ+, with whatever other sins, but keeping it in the context of where we've been messages-wise? What do you do? What does, this, what does this have to do with it? First off, we must interact with them like Jesus did or like Jesus would. You say, well, I don't know what he did. Yeah, you do. Read. read. It's right there. Read. It actually shows how he interacted with them. You don't have to take it because I said it. You can read it. Your Lord and Savior, who is your prime example, who shows us how to do these things, actually did it. Another thing. Avoid self-righteousness like the plague. Remember, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We've been saved by grace. And you know what? I still struggle with sin and so do you. May not be the one that your friend is dealing with or your family member is dealing with or your coworker deals with or your neighbor deals with, but you got stuff too that fits on that list that Jesus said nobody who does these things is fit for the kingdom of God. We need to avoid self-righteousness and be willing to admit to people that are struggling with sin, that we too struggle with sin. And they're immediately going to go, whoa. I said, but you know what? I struggle with sin, but I seek Jesus every day to have victory, to walk in His ways, not my ways, not what my flesh desires. Don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid to apologize when an apology is needed for somebody who's mistreated in the name of Christ. I can't say that enough. If you would stand in front of somebody that's been misused, abused, or treated poorly, or called on the carpet with no love whatsoever because of their lifestyle, and you hear that and your heart sinks when you hear the story, you apologize. Because what you have to do right then is you're representing Jesus Christ and you want the person to know that that's not the way Jesus is. There's power in that kind of an apology. Not because it's your reputation at stake, because it's Jesus' reputation that's at stake. And please, it's so important, love that person or those people enough to tell them the truth. Push through all the smoke screens, the noise, the subject changes, the diversions, all those things there. And you keep loving and you keep caring and you keep loving and you keep caring and there's all kinds of things that come up that are smoke screens and diversions. And pray and seek the Lord that you'll get to that spot in the heart that's struggling and then tell Him the truth. And the truth is this, oh, it's okay, God will take care of it. God will take care of it because He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross to forgive the sin, and to give power over the sin. That's the truth. Listen to a video this week of a, a, a gay atheist who was antagonistic towards Christianity and was out to just fight it tooth and nail to people's face. Long story short, he ends up in a coffee shop or wherever with a woman who he knows is a Christian but he's built a friendship with. And she asks him a question in the midst of their conversation as you're a Christian, yeah, 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 and I know you're not. And, and she asks him the question, Have you ever experienced genuine love? Genuine love of God? Have you ever experienced that? Now this guy's he says, no, I haven't. And she said, can I pray for you right now? And he said, yeah. So she prays and asks that God would help this young man to experience the authentic love of God. And you know what God did? He did it. And this man's life dramatically changed. He says, I still deal with same-sex attraction, but I'm on a different path today. And he's saying again, that need to experience the authentic love of God is a key piece in this thing. Don't forget that. It's not just our truth. It's the authentic love. All of that matched together. Tell them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help you God. So help me God. We chuckle because that doesn't happen anymore in the court of law. I vow, tell the whole truth, nothing to do, oh God, yeah. And then try to get off of whatever you know you did. doesn't fit. But there is truth in that for you and I as followers of Christ. Tell the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And when I say that, God does not need all of your extras in the midst of this. His truth, encapsulated in His perfect love, is more than enough. Remember, it's the truth that sets people free. But again, Christians in the church have gone over here on the extreme and said, I've got the truth, and that settles it. And you know what? 95% of the people don't want anything to do with that. We need to come in here and I've got the truth and that truth changed my life. And it saved me from eternity in hell because I'm a sinner. And you know what? I still wake up on some days and still struggle with sin. And it's that truth that enables me to be empowered to have victory from moment to moment, day by day. That's the truth. Encapsulated with love. Remember, 
Now, what's really needed, like I said, is that firsthand experience of the authentic love of God. Pray for that for the people that you encounter ahead of time. Pray for that while you're in their presence without them knowing it first. And then when the door is open, can I pray for you right now? Yes, in the grocery store, in the restaurant, at work. Do the radical thing. When the door is open and there's an opportunity to pray, you pray right where you are. And trust that God will show His love. Ask Him the question. Ask that question. Make that part of your language. Have you ever experienced the true love of God? Offer it because God's not a respecter of persons. He loves all and wants them to experience that authentic love. I realize in a message like this, we could walk away or you could say, but this was Jesus. He's the Son of God. He could do anything. Yep, he can. But I want to remind you, I want to remind you, Jesus Christ was fully God and fully human. It wasn't as easy for him as you think it was. He still had to overcome his flesh. He still had to overcome his humanity to do the right thing. And that included the way he treated these two women. Now we'll go back to the Easter message. Remember, the Spirit of the living God lives where? In anyone that comes to Christ for forgiveness of sin and makes Him the Lord and follows after Him. And that Spirit, it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. It's the same Spirit that equipped Jesus, that, that worked, coincided with, that, that dwelled with Jesus and made Him able to do these things. It's the same Spirit that you read all the way through the New Testament with those things that happened in Acts where the miraculous things occurred. That's the same Spirit that dwelt in all those people. And Jesus said it dwells in anyone that names Jesus as Lord and Savior and walks with Him in obedience. And that job of that Holy Spirit is this, to remind all of us that have Him within us to remind us of the things that Jesus said. And then to guide us into understanding about the things He said. And that equips us, ready? Gives us the empowerment, the ability to love like Jesus. You know why? Because it's the actual Spirit of Jesus Himself. The Spirit of God Himself lives in us. So you know what? The same love that Jesus exhibited dwells within you and within me. We just need to get our garbage and our flesh and our humanity out of the way long enough for that love to shine through. Are you going to walk that way and live that way for the next 30 years until Jesus returns? Probably not. You're going to have moments where your flesh rears its ugly head and you don't act very Christ-like. But I'm telling you, that as a follower of Christ, we continue to rid self. That's part of the sanctification process. And as we continue to be moldable and shapeable and repent and walk away from things that aren't right, what shines forth more and more and more and more is the character and nature of love of Jesus that exudes out of us. We become more like Him. People see us, they see our facade, our, our humanity, but what they experience when we clear ourselves of junk is they experience the real love of, of Jesus. And He will equip us and empower us to love like Him. He'll empower us to be able to discern and know the reality of that person's deepest needs. Because see, where we might get hung up right now, it's like, holy cow, Jesus just miraculously knew that she had five husbands and He said that. Do you realize that Jesus can do the same thing? The Spirit of God can give you the same insight in a moment so that you could ask a question like that? Do you realize that He can give you the discernment when you look and talk to somebody that they're talking about all the issues and all the hurts and all that stuff there and Jesus is pounding in your heart and said, that's true, but that's not the real issue. How did that woman in the cafe shop know to ask that young man, have you ever firsthand experienced the love of God? And that was the key that broke it. How did she know that? Because the Spirit of God showed it to her. And then she was bold enough to open her mouth and ask the question. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that equipped all the saints before us, is available to you and I, lives within us, and we just need to tap into that power and that discernment ability. You and I need to be a conduit and a bold yet humble dispenser of God's love and His truth. We need to come with fear and trepidation as we think about these people and not look for a list of five checklists or a pamphlet to give somebody or a tract to give somebody or a pet verse to give somebody, but come alongside and build a relationship 
and be praying in that relationship. I just don't want to just be the friend because I'm not really a friend if I don't tell the truth. And you build relationship and there comes a moment where you tell the God truth. And you beg God ahead of time that His love is what comes through. I wish I could tell you that there's a 100% guarantee on result. I will tell you this. There is a 100% guarantee on the result when you do it that way. It's the truth will go forth. It will put a finger on what's really going on there and it allows the person to make the right choice. But they not always make the right choice. And I go back again. A man who had problems with another type of sin, which was greed, that rich man, and his comment was he hung his head when Jesus said to sell everything. And that's another message you can look up I preached it in the past. You can go back and get that one. Jesus actually walked away from that man. Or the man walked away from him. And he didn't chase after that man. If you remember what Jesus did in that moment, he turned to everybody else that was there in the crowd that he says, are you guys going to go too? And it's interesting, the two different things. That was too much for that man to give up from his own perspective. Couldn't do it. But Peter speaks up and says, where am I going to go? You're the only one that has the words of life. Two men heard the exact same message. You say, well, Peter didn't have anything. (laughs) He didn't have money. But he got to the crux of the matter. It is a hard truth, but you're the only one that has the true words of life. I'm convinced of that, and I'm not going to leave. And Peter got his own going forward there. Can you imagine what it had been like? When Jesus told him, get behind me, Satan. Right after telling him, "You're (laughs) you're the rock. You've made a confession of Christ. I'm going to build my church on people like you. Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> like I said, unfortunately, I can't tie this up with a neat little bow and give you five steps or even tell you where to start. Yeah, I can tell you where to start. Get on your knees before Jesus and beg him to empower you and enable you to love like he did. Not in general, for that person or those people that you're dealing with that you had questions about. You start praying for them daily, regularly, over and over again, that God would give them a breakthrough, that they'd experience the real love. And then Jesus, send me. Don't send somebody else, send me. Open the door, allow that. Then give me the boldness to catch, to catch the opening, and then to openly share. And be willing to pray in a moment with them. 